Hello and welcome back to the Game Pit. This is episode 72. I'm Sean and it's more SN Fever. Sean, I missed you. You were off gallivanting again, weren't you, Ronan? I was transatlantic gallivanting. You and your American buddies. Ugh. I've gone from Goodfellas back to Snatch with you. <laughs> What's he going to get away from? Anyway. Uh... <laughs> it was at an angle. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, welcome. Episode 72 of the Game Pit. This is a Spiel 2016 treasure hunt, our second of the year. We're going to be looking at 12 titles coming out in just around a week's time at the Spiel Fair in Essen. And using our powers of deduction, we're going to decide whether they are treasures or traps. Yes, indeed. And we always do stress that we haven't played any of these games yet. And we are just looking from afar and guessing if they're going to be any good or not. And we're quite often wrong. But we've managed to upset some publishers already, Sean. (laughs) I I mostly blame you. That's to be fair. It's usually my fault. (laughs) Mind you, you were quite miserable in the last show, Roland. So it might be your fault this time. I'm just looking through, and I'm not, not sure it's going to get any better. Oh, dear. I like the treasures to be worth something. <laughs> also, <laughs> just absolutely strange, and, and especially to publishers, our trap is just our opinion. We are more than happy to play the game, and every game we play, we will cover somehow after Essence. So if you think we're wrong... The best way to deal with that is to get us to play your game, because we will give our honest opinions after the fair. Well, it's not always the best way, but... <laughs> it's anyway. It's anyway. <laughs> okay, and as always, we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Go there for gaming podcasts of fabulous quality. That's fabulous is the word of the moment. If you want to download our episodes, please go to Podbean itself, Stitcher and iTunes. So we're going to kick off this episode with a game from lotterpalette.fi. It is Flam Rouge, designed by Asker Harding Granarud, who also designed 13 Days Cuban Missile Crisis. It is for two to four players and a listed playtime of 30 to 45 minutes. It is a card-driven cycling race game, the Flam Rouge being the name for the little red kite with one kilometre to go in a cycling race. It's played over a modular board, laid out the track. There are six suggested tracks within the box, and each player is going to have two decks, and they represent each of their two cyclists. The two decks can be slightly different, but they're all going to be a set of cards with numbers on them. And your two cyclists for each player is going to be a ruler and a sprinter. Ruler is kind of an all-rounder, and a sprinter, obviously, is going to be someone who can whiz away quickly. And everyone's decks are the same. In order to play the game, each round, each player is going to draw four cards from each of their two decks. And from those four cards, they're going to play one. And then they move as far as the number on the card they have played, and they have to discard that card. Then you check and see if any cyclists have got clear space in front of them. And if they do, you're going to add a two-value exhaustion card to the deck. And then you check any packs of cyclists which are just one space apart are going to combine up using some drafting there. So it's a game of deciding where you want to go, when you want to go, not being in the lead too often or you're going to ruin your deck with exhaustion cards. And also trying to 
keep just within one, try and anticipate other people are doing in order to use the drafting and stay in touch. That's it. It's very much a simplification of a cycling racing game, hence the short playing time. Sean, it's only got a four-page rule book. It's very clear rules. They've gone for simplicity in this. Flam Rouge, any thoughts? Well, the very first thing Ronan and I thought about this was is just an incredibly watered-down leader one, which I know that you're a big fan of. Now, what I thought from afar... Now, I'm not a big fan of either cycling itself... Heathen. <laughs> I watched the Tour de France occasionally. That's about it. And I've not really had much exposure to Leader One, Hell of the North, which uh, you and Lloyd and Poria are big fans of. What this for me looks like, it looks like a game that is both accessible to me as somebody who's not into cycling, and it's accessible to me as somebody who's not really played any cycling games. That's the attraction for me immediately. Now, I want to know how you feel being a fan of both i think that it's definitely similarities got visual similarities to leader one as you say much quicker much simpler the energy system in leader one and where you're counting off what you're doing all the time here is represented in the decks and how you manage your deck and which cards you spend and get rid of according to Asger himself apparently it's a lot to do with the timing of when to go and it's such a quicker game that it's all right now's the time to sprint and now's the time not to i feel like it's a lot less of kind of a simulation of cycling and much more a family approachable game where yeah you have to play well and have to respond to what's going on but there's a bit of luck in there as well with the card draw and when to go and when not to and you get lucky and get in a break sometimes leader one you can miss the break and you can know an hour and a half before the end you're not going to win that stage in this one over half an hour i don't think it's gonna make that much of a difference it is modular so you can actually sort of put a few ascents and descents in there which change the rules slightly and make it a little bit less luck driven but yeah you are right i think there is a lot more luck than that would appear in in the sort of deeper more strategic leader one i don't want to make it sound like a luck fest i don't think it's chaotic or anything like that i just think that in the simplification he's made it very approachable it's going to have a little bit of that too. You know, if you want to play a game with the family, it can't be a hundred percent skill or you can't be sitting there for two minutes trying to work out exactly how many spaces you want to move this turn. That flipping a card and going, there you go, that's how far I'm moving just seems to really simplify the whole process. And he's already actually supplied rules for a grand tour as well. So there is a little bit of legs to this in terms of you can build up a campaign. Well, they hope there is. Well, they hope, yeah. Well, this is deep, yeah. <laughs> They're already thinking ahead and giving that, that little bit of longevity that maybe a single plays of this, even if you do mix and match that modular board up that they wouldn't have. Not, and if you have, I'm not that impressed with the idea of the whole Grand Tour. It, it, it is a very accessible light game. I'm not sure about trying to squeeze too many pips out of it like that. You know, would you want to play six games of this in a row or save it and come back to it next week? It's, it's a light card game. So you just think it's come out, play it for a little while and then just leave it alone? A light, fun, family-level racing game, I'd say, yeah. Okay, well, Ronan, I'm going to sum up on this one. There's not a lot to it, and that's the beauty of it for me. As I said initially, it's drawn me in because it's actually something that might actually get me interested in the deeper games and in cycling itself. I can see there is slight strategy there. Yeah, there's a little bit of luck with the cars, but I'm really intrigued by this one, Ronan, and I'm going to pick this up in essence. So for me, it's a treasure. Oh, I'm glad you're picking it up. It's all going to be in the gameplay. We don't know what the distribution of cards is in the deck. I think clearly there's going to be different between Ruler and Sprinter. I'm guessing Sprinter has got some high-value cards which allow them to sort of burst free and really go for it. 
I just don't know enough. It's such a simple rule set. I cannot definitely recommend it. It's going to have to take some plays, but I'm very happy Sean's picking it up. But I wouldn't be because if I want to do a racing game, cycling, being a fan of the sport, I think I'd rather go for the heavier game, but I'm more than happy to play it. But for me this time, trap. Very good. And just before we go on to our next one, actually, if you pre-order any of the Law Tablet FI games, there is a really substantial discount. So if you really fancy any of these, now's the time to jump on board. Anyway, we're going to move you on You earned your company shill dollar there, are you? <laughs> <laughs> if you're listening, Law Tablet, you know, yeah, yeah, sort me out. Wink. Yeah. <laughs> wink. <laughs> nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Okay, we're going to move on to a... Big release, not strictly an Essen release, because it did come out in Gen Con, but it's its European debut, and it's Oceanos from Yellow, designed by the prolific Antoine Bowser, and for two to five players. What is it? You have a submarine that you are going to pilot, and that submarine is completely upgradable. Now, why is it upgradable? What are you trying to do with it? Using a card drafting system, you're exploring the sea. So you're going to take out cards that depict layers of the ocean, starting with the top, then you go into a middle layer and down to the base of the ocean, and that's your third and final round. You're trying to basically get set collection in this game. You're trying to collect creatures. You are trying to upgrade your submarine so that you can do more things. So for instance, you have a diver. That diver can then dive for treasure. You can upgrade how many cards you get around. And lots lots of things to upgrade for your submarine while you're building this seabed. And that's pretty much Oceanus run. We're on a little light game run here at the beginning of the episode. We are. We are. Mm, I think it looks amazing in terms of the physical looks of it. I love the great little touches they've got. When you upgrade your submarine, you actually swap in another piece of your jigsaw, so you get more periscopes, or you have more propellers, or whatever it may be. Your aquarium actually gets bigger in the middle there. Great little touches, like the whale with the monocle. It's just very charming. The little baby kraken with the dummy in. It's all there. It's, it's winning you over with looks, isn't it, Sean? It's a beautiful-looking game. Oh, it's a very, uh, very deep, intense, rich colours. Just draw your eye immediately again. It's very pretty, but it's a yellow game, so you kind of expect that. I think there's actual choices in there in how you upgrade your submarine and how you go. But in terms of the card draft and how you're going to get the cards, there doesn't seem to be that much control on how you're going to be able to actually score. And Is there going to be a quite a bit of luck between, well, I've upgraded this way, do the cards roll for me to make that worthwhile? I think there's definitely not 100% control on what, what you do and how you go and how the cards come out. The interest for me in this one is in that drafting mechanism that they've brought in. You will choose one and you give the first player who's the captain for the round the rest of the cards that you don't want. So I think that's a really interesting one. Now they've got a two-player variant on the flip side that I'm a bit worried about. Oh, I don't. Yeah, two player doesn't look great. I think what it means is that only on the turns that you're the captain are you going to get a real choice in your draft. And on the other turns, it, you know, it's one of two, one of three cards. It doesn't sound like I'm going to be able to put much of a cohesive structure together. You know, I know they're going for family. I know they're going for charming. I know they're going for light. But in all the upgrades you can do and the multiple choices, that's going to be a little bit confusing for younger children. And then with the lack of control of the cards, there's not going to be enough there for gamers. And I feel like it's fallen between two stools. And really, when you're captain, that's when you're going to get a load of cards to be able to make a decent choice. But that's one round in four or five, however many people are playing. 
the one of the issues with me is I think it's fairly obvious that you want more cards in your hand. So I think that most people, when their initial upgrade is going to be but, getting but more But by cards. doing that, you know you're giving every other player more benefit than yourself because you're yeah. having more cards every turn. I think that's yeah. something people have said that there's a nice balance in everything you try and do. You can't just grab like I want four cards every round. That's great because as captain I'll get three of your cards. So yeah, it's great for me, but then I'm giving everyone else more cards as well, so that kind of balances off. I just think it is exactly what it says on the tin. It's it's very light. It's very pretty. I think there's not a lot of backstabbing and stuff like that. And I think there are just. <laughs> I think they're very very gentle tactical decisions within the game it's nothing that's going to stress you out it's nothing that's going to completely alter the game one way or the other for you but you just got to guide you gently along and you've hit the oceanos nail on the head for me mate it's charming it's well made it's inoffensive bland it's not for me and oceanos is a trap for me i'm afraid I'm going to say exactly what you said. Ronan, it's charming. It's well-made. It's inoffensive. I'll drop the bland. I think it's tending towards the gentle and the serene, shall we say, rather than the bland. And for me, Oceanus is going to be a treasure. I'm really been excited about this one since Gen Con. I think it's just going to be a nice game. That's Oceanos. Okay, we're going to definitely come away from the lighter games now. We're going to move on to a much heavier title. This is The Colonists. It's from Lookout and Mayfair, their partners in publishing. It's for one to four players. It has a projected playtime of 30 to 240 minutes. Now, there's one to four players. There's also introductory games, medium games, advanced games in this. You have different numbers of workers in it, which is why it's such a broad range of spectrum of playtime there, up to four hours. The designer is Tim Pools, and this is his first game. The theme of the colonists is you're the mayor of a village and you're going to need to develop your village, create jobs, attract people in, create housing for those people and educate them. So how you're going to do that, we're not entirely sure because there's no rules available with a week to go to Essen. Interesting choice. There is kind of a weird, funny walkthrough available in which you can follow an introductory game between two players which tells you what they're doing and refers to lots of stuff, but you haven't got any rules or component lists or you don't really know what they're talking about. Very, very strange decision from two reasonably sized publishers here not to give us more information than that, but there you go. What I can work out is you do have a number of workers, one in the base game up to four, I believe, in the most advanced game. They are going to be moving around in a hexagonal grid. Think a suburb in suburbia and as you move a work around, it will activate the tile it goes onto and it will do something. It will get you some resources, allow you to build something back in your own village, or it will allow you to draw development cards and which you choose from and they're gonna be in your hand in order to build them back in your village or educate or upgrade your meeples. It's they're gonna have various actions, a lot to do with taking wood, then taking that wood somewhere else, turn it into planks, then taking those planks somewhere else, turn them into a shed, then going to get some clay which you can stick in that shed which eventually you'll turn into something else you get the idea of this transactional euro whereby you're doing this to do that to do this to do that at the end of each year which is two rounds of all the work is activating the board's going to grow somewhat you're going to see what those tiles are beginning of the round so you'll know what's going on but at the end of the game you're going to get points for the buildings you've built and all the people that are in your little borough your village who are employed so if they haven't got a job they're not going to score you anything that's what we know 
right now, very close to the fair. And Sean, they've printed this introductory thing with the two players describing what's going on. And I think that's probably the most boring thing I've ever had to read in my life, bar none. Uh, (laughs) While you were talking there, I had to familiarise myself again with that exact thing. I'm staring at it right now. Don't do it. Shut the window. Move on. (laughs) I think I'd blotted it out. I think I must have passed out (sighs) and dreamt about it afterwards or something, because it just... Bob and Alice collect a clay. Bob puts it on his farm. Before that, he must swap his stone from his storehouse, because... What? Right, so what do we know about this one? There seems to be an interesting spatial awareness factor in, and uh, the root selection thing going on. That probably I picked out as been the most interesting thing so far about the game. I agree with you in that where you put your workers limits where they can go next turn because they do three yeah. jumps on a turn. But from the tiles we've seen, they're all much of a muchness. Yeah, you're not, yeah. You're not every individual act that you're doing is boring. So I'm trying to start off positive there, Ronan. Now, <laughs> well, I agree that the growing of the board and, and the adding of actions all the time looks interesting. But then you look at what the actions are and you go, huh? Yeah, yeah. I think it looks like it could be interesting. That depends on how fast the board grows. It looks like you just had a handful of tiles. And I suppose that would then sort of make your initial choice of where to start and where to finish your movement more important. So that's interesting when you're placing, you don't want to be helping somebody else by making something accessible to them. That's all of a sudden quite interesting. Now, what I've gleaned from this run through, as tedious and boring as it is, there doesn't seem to be enough of any one sort of mechanism in the game. It seems to have a very simple root selection mechanism in there. It seems to have a very simple area building thing going on. It seems to have a very simple economy to the game in that you just get a piece of wood and a piece of clay and you do this with it. None of those, from what I've seen so far, are good enough in their own right or even collectively to form an interesting game. The only thing that I picked out of that and go, oh yeah, okay, I can see things materialising, I can see what I would like to do is that special awareness of the route when you're building those tiles in front of you. I've got a horrible worry about a trend in some of the games that are coming out this year. This one and some of the others we're going to talk about. There's a trend of offering you 50, 60, 70, 80 actions you can take on your turn, none of which are very interesting, all of which are very microtransactional to get to somewhere in the end, and all individually very, very boring. I don't want a game like that. It's going to come up again and again. There's no restriction in this game. I can make my plan and then just get on with it. I can go into a building where someone else's worker is. Okay, it's going to cost me a little bit more. I might want to avoid it, but no one can block me out. There's nothing stopping me doing what I want to do. We talked last time about a Euro in which there's no obstacle. In this, it just seems like, oh, yeah, I can go and get that brick. I can go get that wood. Why do I want to do it? How are you hooking me in? Just making something tricky, just making something a multi-step process is not good enough. Because, yeah, yeah, you've got to think about it a lot, but none of the thinking I'm doing is fun. We're kind of coming at it from two slightly different angles, but we're certainly meeting in the middle. It's just that it's not interesting. It's not fun. Yeah, at the end of the game, you can say, right, I've gone from A to B. 
but I've had to go through A.1, A.2, A.3, A.4 just to get to B. And it's just, as you said, it's not interesting. The look of the game, it just looks like, like suburbia. The central board where you're building those tiles, it just looks like an even duller suburbia. <laughs> suburbia. suburbia. You leave suburbia alone. Where suburbia shines is in the gameplay, and this just doesn't seem to have the gameplay to match. Well, and I think I've made myself <laughs> pretty clear. I mean, the game, it, it looks dreary. The run-through was incredibly dreary. The steps that you have to take in order to get simple gains, as you said, just are dreary. So I'm going to give this a dreary old trap. Yeah, shocking. The no interaction, no fun. The colonists trap. Sean, take me to a beautiful city. I'm going to give you the key to that city, Ronan. Oh, please do. And that city is London. Yeah. Yeah, and this is Key to the City London by R&D Games, designed by Sebastian Bleasdale and Richard Breeze, and for two to six players. This is very much in the Key Flower mould, and it's a variant, I don't know if you call it a variant, but definitely takes strong inspiration from Key Flower. So each player is going to develop their own London borough. And this is going to be around their home tile using hexagonal location tiles. Tiles are going to reap points and can supply resources, which will be used to upgrade those tiles later. It's played over a number of eras, and your player actions are basically, you can bid for a tile, you can use a tile to generate the resources and your connectors or skills. You can upgrade a tile, you can pass but you can still play again that area or you can just cease playing in the area and that allow you to set sail and it's going to choose your reward for the next round so uh, ronan key flower in london it is key flower <laughs> you're saying variant or inspired by it. It, it is key flower really isn't it they've streamlined it a bit they've taken out the green meeples so you've only got the red and blue when you're when you're bidding there's no upgrade tile. You upgrade on each tile itself to flip it over. They've made it all a bit quicker and a bit easier. Well, that's good news. I can't go anywhere other than that. That sounds fantastic in itself before we even touch the theme, Sean. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't think Keyflower is a particularly lengthy or laborious game, but I think it definitely will appeal to a wider audience. Uh, just, just that little bit of streamlining. And then... And we, we're going to be biased, Roland. Born and bred in London. If you're going to make a game about London, we'll forget about London Dread. Dread. And <laughs> concentrate on this one. The London theme just wins us over totally. The fact that it's real places, places that we see, you know, every week. What can I say other than I'm in? Spoiler, it's going to be a treasure. I also think I like the way they've done the passing system that affects turn order and your meeple income rather than having to bid on meeple income and stuff like that. So, so they've really just accelerated Keyflower and stuck a theme I love on it. It couldn't be more of a treasure, Sean. Oh, absolutely. And I, I, the new sort of resources in there are skills and connectors. Now, connectors, I think, actually adds a little bit of depth into how you'll plan your tiles, what you buy and where you're going to build those tiles. Whereas in Keyflower, where you built, you were mainly just concentrating on getting stuff back to your central tile and building those routes that way. But with the connectors, it just adds that little tweak of depth. Cool. I'm still in. You're still in. Good man. <laughs> Right, and one, one thing I was upset about, the boundaries of this London map that you're building, that you're working within, 
They didn't go as far as Wembley Stadium. I was, You're I was the hoping. only person in the whole world who ever wanted Wembley included in a game. <laughs> I got in my local backyard. They should have put Wembley High Street in there. <laughs> <laughs> Scene of many of our drunken rampages. <laughs> easy now, easy. Come on, confirm your treasure. Let's get on with this. We're right, okay, yeah. It's, it's, Everyone knows we are. It's based on a game that I love. It's based in a city that I love. Key to the city, London. A treasure all the way. We knew Bring that from the minute you started talking. We drawing it out for. Okay, <laughs> this one's going to be no mystery either. Psychedies Monuments from Matago, a mini expansion for obviously for the Psychedies game from the same designers. This one is uh, it's ten monument miniatures which you can build during the game, and the ten cards that go with them. That's all we know. I can't give you any more than that. I just wanted to point it out because obviously there's lots of expansions coming out. You have to make decisions whether they're worth it or not. But each Cyclades expansion has brought options without complications in there. They know how to do expansions for this game. Apart from maybe the Kemet crossover, which was a bit mental. Sean, any thoughts on Cyclades monuments? Okay, from what we know about them, so the monuments are going to be to each god and they're going to give you a unique power. What they've said is it does link in with all the other expansions so that you can, you can just chuck everything at this. I've seen the plastic resin of the actual monuments themselves. They're going to look fabulous, Ronan, on the board. Fabulous. Fabulous, fabulous. And they're going to be built is that you're going to combine two buildings. So you have to build two of one type of building and then you construct your monument. So it still uses the framework of the game. I do like that bit because sometimes you can get stuck with a god and say you've got already got a temple and you can, you can build a temple. You want. Why would I build a second temple? That's pointless. So, you know, actually, I will build a second temple because it's going to get me a monument. Kind of makes sense. I hope that yeah. doesn't slow down the actual winning of the game go because who's going to give up two buildings on the way to winning the game when you need eight to win just for the sake of one monument? Yeah, true, true. But I think I like the way that it's built in with the framework of the game. You have that decision. You have that choice. It's a gamble, possibly, to give up those two buildings to build yourself a monument. But I think the powers, I mean, I don't really know what the powers are going to be, per se, but they promise to be very, very powerful and sort of game changers in their own right. So if you get those early enough, then maybe you are going to go for it but halfway through the game it's a gamble it's another interesting choice in a very interesting game Ronan. it certainly is Sean what and do you think about it they tend to make good expansions haven't been disappointed yet so I'm going to go out on a limb and say that this is another treasure yeah for me Sarkis Monuments it is a very little one because it's just a little mini expansion but it is a small treasure for me ah oh, look at monuments <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're going to go to a re-implementation of an old Steffenfeld game. It's Jorvik, as I said, designed by Steffenfeld. It is being brought out by Eggertspiel, Spiel, and Stronghold Games. And it plays two to five players. What does it re-implement? It re-implements the Speakerstadt and is now themed as a Viking game. Ronan loves a re-theme into Viking games. Mm, I believe I mentioned this to Mr. <laughs> Bonacore last time. At uh, least he picked uh, the city. Come on, give him that. Fair enough. And 
what this is and what the speaker stat was, it's a bidding game with a twist. So your players are going to bid on cards that give various rewards. And the first one to bid will get the first chance to buy. The price, however, is directly as a result of how many other players are in the queue for that card. And as I said, the cards do various things. Raids are going to break out in this. It was fires in the speaker stat. And Ronan, you played the speaker stat. I haven't. How do you feel about this? Well, the original game was mechanically interesting in that you could really be mean to each other and overjump each other on the bids and make people overpay and end up with pretty much nothing. But as everyone knows, as we touched on last episode, it's thematically incredibly, incredibly dull. You were doing these bids to like get spices and get silk and it was just absolutely did nothing. It looked awful. So they've made it look good, Sean. Let's start there. It needed a retheme okay vikings horrifically overdone we could have come up with something original but they've taken a mechanically solid game and given it some chrome well that should have really been a cthulhu retheme shouldn't it yeah i've got the word cthulhu written down here and i refuse to say it <laughs> uh yeah the, the original was to do my research on the das speaker stat I watched Ryan Metzler talking about it, and he was very positive about the game generally, but he just sounded thoroughly bored. And I think a lot of that is the theme. But yeah, they've added a little bit of chrome to it with the Viking overhaul. But still, is there enough game there for you, Ronan? This is difficult for me to judge, because I remember playing it and going, yeah, but I can't invest. And if you don't invest in an auction game, Really, it means nothing. This is why auction games sometimes are difficult to get going with new players because you don't know the value of it. And in this case, you know, I was bidding to win some kind of good uh, contract to put ships on it. I just didn't care. So with this coming out, thinking about it, I've been trying to think exactly how much that theme hampered it. And I think it hampered it quite a lot, Sean. You got re-theme came out, and I was like, oh, yeah, cool. Oh, it's Vikings. Oh, poo. Oh, can we get a better theme? But the more I think about it, and the more it comes up, and the more you kind of see it, you know, I am starting to get more excited. It is rekindling the fire I had put out previously. <laughs> oh, nice, nice. It wasn't nice, was it? Two players doesn't work, though, surely. Just no tension. You just either stack up behind someone if you don't want them to get something. And that's what it. auction game works with two players? Exactly, yeah. So, I think that's kind of your answer. Why have they put a two-player on the bot? No, 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 no. Three-player. Yeah, surely three to five. At yeah, least. I'd say so. I'd say so. Like, like lots of these games. Probably a month ago, I'd have been trapped on your bit going, no, I, I just not that fussed by the original game. It's grown on me, the whole idea. You know I like a Stefan Fell game, usually. Spoiler. <laughs> so, Jorvik, I think, has done enough to win me over. So, I'm going to throw down a treasure. For me, having looked at the original, I don't think that they've changed enough for it. They've made a few tweaks here and there, but nothing. They, they have put up. the expansion in the box, at least, and given you the whole sort of. They've given you the whole experience. thing, yeah, yeah. They've got, okay, the speaker stat and the expansion. I don't think they've changed enough in the basic mechanisms to make it interesting enough for me that one interesting mechanism does that make a great game for me and i don't think it does i'm still a little bit worried that it's going to be boring once you get through the initial play or two of this one so i'm going to say it's a trap that is your vic half time break half time break
So, my first game of the second half is also from Matigo, and it's also from the same family as my previous one. Sean, I am stringing this together. You're like a stringy bean? Yeah. Really? I'm sure. <laughs> Field. <laughs> a box of them. Okay, this is Innis. It's from Matigo and Pegasus Spieler. Two to four players with a playing time of 90 minutes. The designer is Christian Martinez. He designed Histrio and Expedition Altiplano. Players in Innis are the chieftains of Celtic tribes and they are vying to become the High King. They're going to be vying on an expanding modular board. Starts with three kind of triangular tiles with funky kind of jigsaw bits on them. And every tile in the game is unique, not just unique in artwork, but also unique in function with a unique power card associated with it for whoever controls it. Each player is represented by 12 figures on the board. They are different sculptures, but they just are figures. It makes no difference what they are. And on the board, you can be building citadels and sanctuaries, which are the two sort of different types of builders you can put in there to help you in battles and help you try and win the game. In terms of gameplay itself, it's all going to be about drafting action cards. There's going to be four cards per player per round. On the first draft, you keep one and pass them on as normal. Then, for the second draft, you combine that one with the other three you receive, and you keep any two out of those. And then you continue next time, do exactly the same thing, keep any three, and then you end up with four action cards in your hand. Added to those action cards... You're going to have advantage cards, which are the territory cards. If you're the leader in a territory, as I said, linked back to the unique tiles and everyone's going to have something different. And there are also epic tail cards you can be able to get by doing things in the game, which are kind of questy things you're trying to do to help you out and gain an advantage. On your turn, you're going to either play a card, do whatever it says on there. You're going to pass and then you're out for the rest of the round. Or you're going to take a pretender token. When you take a pretender token, it says, I am able to achieve one of the win conditions. And let's everyone know, because unless you have a pretender token, you cannot win. The win conditions are either to be a chieftain over six opposing clans. So you control areas of the board where there are at least six opposing figures. Either be present with six sanctuaries or just the last of the three is to be present in any six territories. Now, you can fight. It is very deterministic fighting and only two of the action cards can actually instigate a fight per round, although there are a couple of other ways of doing it. Before each fight, if there are any citadels available in the area, people can run away and hide in citadels, so you're not necessarily going to kill. And then you just remove one piece at a time. You can discard cards to mitigate being attacked. So instead of removing a piece, you can throw a card away, but that's obviously going to affect what you've done, what your plans are, how valuable that card was to enter your plans fight can just be mutually called off and just say look we don't want to fight and that can happen before the fight even begins say no 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 we'll happily coexist here at the end of each round you check who's got the most clans in each area they become the leader they get the card for it and that is Innis it's kind of a zero very low on luck anyway not actually very fighty dudes on a map game sure much more about area control than actually kicking off a war the reason I said it was linked back because it's kind of part of the same series of Cyclades and Kemet, and now we have Innis in a different traditional folklore theme. Hit me. Okay, before we get on to the mechanisms, Ryan, we're going we're gonna to address the elephant in the room. <laughs> the elephant on the box are in the room. The elephant on the box, and then I think we're probably going to have a little fight. I'm going to have to play my fight card when we talk about the actual Don't make me hide in the citadel. In the you. box. <laughs> so, the box cover. Shocking. Shocking. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> people are some people are defending it. If you go on board Game Geek, some people just think it's the best thing they've ever seen ever. And I think most people are just saying that is just a horrible, horrible box. When my uh, eldest daughter was about seven, she was in an Irish kind of cultural after-school club because there's quite a few Irish people in the area of Irish descent. It looks like a colouring sheet that they've given her to do to take home to show me. I like that. Yeah, that's pretty much what I would imagine a seven-year-old would produce. Okay, great. We nailed that. Let's move now, on to the fact that the tiles are but ugly. Shut your mouth. We, 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 we're going we're gonna to go down. Celtic tradition right here. Right, okay. The car park. Let's, let's go. Right, tops off. Bare knuckle boxing. Me and you. Let's go. Let's do this. We're, we're going to do this. you got nothing. You got nothing. I, got, ugly. I am armed with a beautiful board, with beautiful, stunning, sprawling artwork. Which, as each individual piece might look alright, but with a white outline in a funny shape, put together all in different angles to each other, all contrasting off each other. Individually, each tile might be okay, but when you put it together as a board, no. you hated the whole Deus thing with the white outline. Why? How can you like it here when it's so jaggedy because, and so no, because, obvious? And, and because of that, because it's kind of swirling so together, and it just looks like it's all just come together naturally. It's it really doesn't. It does. Completely disparate pieces of art thrown together at awkward angles to each other. You've got the blocky feel to Deus. Now you've just got this sort of swirly feel to it. As you said, each individual piece of art is beautiful. I like the white outline because it clearly delineates which area is which. I think that makes it functional. And I, I really like the look of it. I don't like the cards. The cards go back to the box art style. The box art style, as I said, is horrible. But it made me just completely pass this game by initially. You're the only reason... That I've even investigated this game, uh, and I was completely ignoring it. But it had some buzz. I mean, I seriously, I saw that artwork. I didn't know it was from Atico. I was just like, no way. I genuinely presumed it was self-published. One of those because you know when you're doing your essay list and you just have to write things off. And sometimes at an initial glance, you're like, no, no, no. Have a look at that. No, no. This was a definite straight. No, not even, not even bothering with that no, one. No, just I saw it from Matico. I'd heard it mentioned by a couple of people, and I was like, oh, what even is it? And then I saw it from Cyclades Kemet family, not the same designers, but that general idea of reducing down this this dudes on Ooh. on a map into something slightly different. Okay, uh, that that kind of got me looking. Now, right. moving on from the shocking artwork, <laughs> I love <laughs> card drafting combo card drafting is even better you're not stuck with that first card because you know, sometimes you take the first card in the draft and you're like well I don't know what the hell this is going to do it might work it might not work sometimes it makes you conservative in what you're doing and you just go I'm just going to take the most general one so it doesn't mess up when you can combo card draft you can take risks knowing that you can reset next time around you've got a couple of chances to guide where you want to go Although the flip side of that is it does make negative drafting easier because you can go, well, I've got the two I need. You're not getting that one, mate. I like the fact that there are only two fight cards. Now, mm. I, yeah, I see now I have these side quests that you have to do. You're sort of in amongst each other. There's always the threat of battle. If somebody's going to have that card each round, you're not sure who, so you don't want to overstep 
your boundaries too much with, with people, but you don't know who's got that. So I like that. I like the mystery and the possibility of battle, but it's not thrown into your face and everybody is going to clash. I'm torn on that because then where's the tension in what you're doing? But that is the tension that you don't know. You could push into areas and right up into people's faces and do something that would instigate a war, but you know that that person might not have the cards. You might be holding the cards, so then all of a sudden you're holding the aces. I like that. I like the mystery. and What the only two action cards and what the deterministic combat and what the ability to hide in citadels, like it takes away the theme and the flavour for me because it's too gamey. It's like, hold on. I'm here with you. I've got three clan. You've got three clan. Why can't we fight? I suppose it, it depends on what way you're coming at it. As I said, I'm just coming at it from the way is that I'm not forced to fight you. Yeah, that's fine. But then, but it's not thematic. And what it does is takes me away to a different type of game. I'm, I'm wondering why have you shoehorned a game with this mechanisms into this family of games when it just doesn't seem to fit in with the other two? You're right. I don't know that it particularly has to be in with those. I think it's an interesting enough prospect on it. So, right, maybe the fact that it looks awful, I thought, oh, hang on, we better link this to something. <laughs> Give it a little bit of buzz. <laughs> we kind of looking at it in, in the same ways, Ronan, but I'm liking what I'm looking at and you're a bit unsure what you're looking at. Is that is that fair to say? I think that is fair to say. I think kind of keeping track of the different conditions for the win is going to be tricky and kind of interesting i feel like that's what they brought in that declare you can win the pretender token i don't like that that's the one issue i'd have with it well because it's so complicated yeah yeah it's on so complicated. And go, hold on you're in where how many sanctuaries yeah. how many are in with you you know each one move of a clan can suddenly put a person in the position yeah. where they can win the game You've got to claim a pretender token why that's my question. To see functionally why they've put it in, because I think it might be too easy to be sneaky and just yeah. have that. Yeah. But then, so again, but I don't like it. I don't... Of the game don't fit the game. Yeah, I would rather someone be sneaky. Yeah, you might go. Oh, someone just have that moment when they go. You know what? Sorry, guys, I've won. And everyone's yeah, like, oh. because oh, Sean takes a pretender token. Great. Hello, you two. Let's the three of us discuss how the hell we're going to stop that from happening. I think that's one of the reasons that a lot of people are saying that this works really well with two players. It's because someone takes that pretender thing. There's no ganging up, and if you can do something about it, you can. If you can't, then the person's going to win anyway. It's something I don't like. I'd like someone to be sneaky. I like to win sneaky. I like to go sneak around... Bit of table chat. Oh, look at him. He's doing really well. You might want to watch him. He's just about to win the game. And then, ha ha, he's won. Ha ha. There's none of that. It's like, I'm about to win. Yeah. Right. Smash him. <sighs> That's my one reservation. But everything else for me outweighs that a hundredfold. I love the way that you start off amongst each other. I love that you don't have, that you're forced to fight. I love the, the threat of fight and it's hidden from everybody. I love, I love drafting games anyway. I do think the board looks stunning. I think those little citadels within the board look absolutely beautiful for me. It's an absolute treasure and it's coming home with me. 100%. Wow. I'm shocked. Genuinely shocked it's that much of a treasure. Sean, I couldn't be more torn on this game. I've got faith in Matico. I love Psychothes. I love Kemet. I've got to think there's a reason why they link this game to them. But I don't like the look of it. 
I don't know what's on all those action cards because they haven't listed them for us. We can't see. And a lot of the game's going to be with regards to that. We don't know exactly how the epic tales are going to work. I'm not over the moon about the quite boring combat system. Don't like the whole ganging up aspect. And yet the faith in Madigo and the system is putting me back. Uh, is it a trapture? Treasure. Treasure. A trapture? <laughs> it's a trap. <gasps> you heathen. I know. And especially with Ireland and all the rest of it. Celtic, but it's Ireland really. I really want to like it, but I can see the prototype. Every time I look at it, I can see this is cubes on a board. I don't care how much theme you've attempted to put on there. It's not working for me. Right. Before I get too upset, let's move on. We are going... If you to... want to go somewhere that it definitely hides the mechanism in theme, we definitely go to a Stefan Fell game, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> we're, off. we're off to the Oracle of Delphi. Are we? It, we are. Pegasus Spiel, full cap games. Obviously, it's Mr. Feld, two to four players. Now, it's Zeus, and his infinite wisdom, has decided to reward one mortal by inviting him or her to Olympus. Now, to determine the worthy mortal, he has set 12 legendary tasks. And this is where players are going to step in. So in the game, each player must race to build three shrines, collect and deliver three offerings, raise three statues, and defeat three monsters. You have a central modular playing space where players are going to move around sea and island tiles and an individual player board where players are going to work from and store their achievements, abilities, and, of course, their oracle dice. Oracle dice are what drive the game and apply actions related to the results. The actions range from moving your ship... You move your ship to the colour space, matching the colour of the dice results. You can explore hidden islands by turning them face up. You influence a god by moving up on a track. You, when you get to the top of that track, you get a one-off power. And you can do all of this trying to get those 12 trials. Ronan, kick us off with some Oracle of Delphi banter. Banter doesn't seem to quite fit into this game, does it? <laughs> oh, you're trying to have a bit of fun. Uh, you know when we do these previews, right? So obviously we take six each, and the onus is on the person introducing the game to really dig into the rules and kind of get an understanding. And the other person's got slightly less responsibility. I am so glad. Sean chose his games first, by the way. So, so glad you took on Oracle of Delphi. Because I read that rule book twice, and I may as well have read it zeros times. <laughs> Yeah. Given that the dice drive everything, it's really hard to find out what the dice drive. <laughs> just That's what I say about it. Like, you're just like, hang on, but you, you, why are we rolling those dice at the beginning again? It gives you everything is there, but it's in no particular order, and it stresses how important it is to roll those dice. And you have lovely big diagrams on rolling those dice and where to place them, and then it's like... Okay, what do I do with them? I've read the whole book and I still don't quite know what to do with the dice. It's this whole thing of throwing rules at you when they haven't explained anything else at all about the game. So they're telling you about statues and monsters and islands and ships and you're like, what? And they're telling you to do stuff on the god track. What? And if you're, if you're last, then you put your thing on the place where there's the number of players is where your first thing goes because your first injury token. And you go, what? 
kind of injury tokens get explained a bit later and it turns out they're not injuries at all they're kind of a weird set collection thing that you don't want to do but actually give you something good and something bad at the same time there you go um do you mechanically know how to do the 12 tasks to win this game no me neither and i've read i know i know that the dice color has something to do with moving your ships to places of that color (laughs) what's the other die that's in there that someone has to roll oh i know you're asking me yeah me too on that one hey what it's just unfathomable with a fell game, with a deep fell game, like let's go back to like an aquasphere. And it kind of, there's little bits of aquasphere in this game for me, with the the moving around the area and your selection by moving around. Basically, what is a big circle? You need to lay it out in a certain way, and it has to all make sense as you're moving through it, because you will forget things at the beginning unless they are linked throughout. There's no point in placing the dice mechanism at the top and what the dice does near the bottom, and then in the middle, a load of different rules to different things and exceptions to rules. It's not going to stick in people's minds, and there's a certain way to attempt a felled rulebook, and this isn't it. It certainly isn't it, but what have we been able to glean about oracle of delphi it seems like the board's quite open to you you can take on these tasks in pretty much any order you want you kind of get a different ship power to each other to start with and that might guide your opening moves but it seems very wide open and as i mentioned earlier that that's kind of an uneasy development in games for me with this. Here you go. What do you want to do? There's 50 million things you can do. But it's, it's very difficult to, to work out if there is any linear path for you to follow from that rule book. Is there strategies to take? Is it just wild choices? Because the middle of the table would lead you to think it is just random wild choice. Do you go off in that direction or that direction? And some of the other things I've noticed about it, Ronan, are... So he's a dice roller. Now, you do have favour tokens, which are basically a currency that you can use to change the dice results. But how luck-based is it still going to be? If you need a specific dice roll and you don't have the favour tokens to turn it, are you kind of hemped into a corner? Yeah, it's a puzzle, isn't it? With this sort of procedural thing where you have to do things in a certain order. And it also leads me to worry that the later on you get in the game, is that going to happen more often? Because you're like, well, I've done eight of them. I've only got four things left to do. So it's like dice come in certain ways. There's just nothing I can do with them. That is a concern, Sean. And I'm going to go slightly back to the artwork again and the, the look and the theme of the game, Ronan. Your player boards, I think they're really nice looking. And then you go to a really functional looking central area where it's just these functional modular tiles and it just looks horrible. It doesn't look horrible. It looks like... I think it does. A lot of games that have got seas and islands on them. There's some blue and there's some green. I'm guessing because you've got to plan your route round, you have to see where the statues are and where they need to go. There's a lot of link to islands of certain colours. They're sort of around in a certain colour and that's where you can do certain things. And I think the background art has to be toned right down to make that at all usable in terms of the colour guide and where you need to go. And another thing, uh, harking back to the rulebook. Now, the rulebook mentions equipment and companion cards. And it kind of hints that these are really powerful things that can really change the game. 
but you don't really know much about them. I suppose if you've got the cards in your hand, then you can actually look at them for yourselves. But from a rulebook perspective, I don't know how they're going to change the game up. There's an awful lot of things that have been hinted at in that rulebook, and I don't know what they do. <laughs> why, why would you single out two of them? There are dozens. Ah, Sean, this is another one. I'm torn on Oracle of Delphi. A heavier Stefan Fell game. You'd think 100% I'm in, right? Same as the sequel to Psych to Ethan Kevin. 100% I'd have to be in. And then you look at it and you just think, I don't know enough about the game. So how can you possibly make a heavy Stefan Fell game? Not a definite treasure for me, but they have. It has to be a try it and see. I don't want to be the first person to work out how to play this game in our game group because they're going to end up having to teach everyone else because of just the horror show they've put together. I I'm weeping. Oracle of Delphi. Stupid rulebook. Trap. Well, I said before we even started this, Ronan, that I was waiting for your take on this because I was confused. And you've kind of come back and just made me even more confused. Stefan Feld is usually someone that I will seek out his games at Essen, and they're almost always a hit for me. And I've already said that one's a trap, and I'm going to have to say another one's a trap. But it is something that I'm hoping for that eureka moment when we sit down, play it in Essen. I'm hoping for someone to go, right, this is how you play the game. And I go, ah, that makes absolute sense now. Thank you. Here's the money. I'm buying it. But for now, it's a trap. That is the Oracle of Delphi. I'm looking forward to you teaching it to me. (laughs) Best of luck there. (laughs) Okay, we're definitely going to change tack, Sean. We're going to go on something much, much lighter. This is hop. With an exclamation mark. How'd you say hop? All in capitals with an exclamation mark. Hop! Hop yourself! (laughs) This is from Funforge. Three to six players of 30-minute games. Got joint designers. Marie Cardouat. She is not designing anything before, but she's the artist of the original Dixit. And a very pleasant lady. I've met her a couple of times. Very nice. She designed this with Ludovic Marblanc. Cyclades, there we go, I've mentioned it enough times this episode. He designed Mr. Jack, he designed Cash and Guns, lots and lots of games for Ludwig Morblanc. You're a bunch of friends, and you've heard of a secret realm in the clouds, and you're going to race each other to get to the very top, which is level 7. This is how you're going to do it. The player whose turn it is becomes the Hurler, and they take a ring-like rainbow token with a rainbow and clouds on it, and they choose a target player, and that target player becomes the Skewerer. And they need to put their elbow on the table and their index finger straight up in the air. And they are going to try and catch the rainbow token when the hurler throws it. Now, you don't just have to throw it. There are dare cards in the game. You draw a dare card and it tells you in some way how you're going to have to project the rainbow token onto the finger of the skewerer. It may also bring in other players to be assisters or turbulators. Assisters will want you to succeed. Turbulators will not. I don't know what turbulator means, but anyway, there we go. Anyone who's not directly involved in this particular challenge is then going to bet on the success of it. Should the rainbow token go over the finger, then the hurler will be able to advance one level on the 3D board. It's basically four levels, one size one, then two, then you move up the level, three, four, up to seven. And you're going to move your little groovy little figure up on that board to show exactly what level you're on if you're the herder boom up a level if you're the skewer and you catch it you get to take a cloud token which may have one or two points on there if you've assisted successfully or turbulated successfully you also get to take a cloud token which gives you some points if you have 
bet successfully that this is either way round. You get to take a dove token. Three of those equals moving up one level. If you were unsuccessful in your bet, you take a crow token. Three of those and you lose one balloon. Your balloons equal your lives. If you're the hurler, you threw the token, it didn't land on the finger. You also, that's the other way you can lose a balloon. The game is over either when one person reaches level seven on the board or anyone's lost all five of their balloons. At that stage, everyone adds up their points and their points are as simple as what level you are on on the board plus any cloud tokens you have gathered. Sean, away from all those euros, away from all that headache, away from all the bad rule books, let's have some fun with hop. Right, right, right. I'm shocked that you haven't done your uh, turbulator research. I, I, uh, I admit o- that my turbulator research. <laughs> Oxford English Dictionary says a uh, turbulator is one who creates turbulence to stop a ring going over another's finger. Is that really what it says? Wow. <laughs> Wonder how they create that turbulence. Okay. Hop. Hop? Hop. Looks very pretty. The Fabulous. Little miniatures. Fabulous. The little miniature resin figures, very Crossmaster-esque, styly. Uh, they look really good. Way above board game standard good. They look really good. As a spectacle, when you look at the board, it's kind of like this 3D rendition of the cloud space. Very nice. I think it's very much in the family range, Ronan. It looks fun, and it looks funny. It's about being able to throw and catch. I think... With families, yeah, cool. These type of dexterity games sometimes can be difficult. I think oh, what I like about this is the two-person system, whereby you have both a hurler and a skewerer. So therefore, let's say if someone younger was throwing, you might make someone who was more capable the skewerer. And you can kind of self-even up like that. And I, I think that's a nice system to it, rather than if it was just throwing rings over something, only certain members, the more skilled they are, are going to be likely to win. Now I'm going to start being a little bit mean. You can't. You can't do a game as lovely looking as Hop! Hop! Uh, is it not just a simple game of catch? Is it going to get boring real soon? How could you possibly get bored with a 3D board in front of you and cloud tokens and dove tokens? What more do you want? It's a it's rainbow really... you're throwing, Sean. <laughs> a rainbow. How can that not make A completely happy? pointless 3D board. Completely pointless. <gasps> How else would you show that you were going up? <laughs> How are you going up, Ronan? I'm hopping. <laughs> uh, yeah, the random score tiles. It just introduces pure luck into the equation. Did I mention that you throw a rainbow tile? Hop. Yeah, yeah. I can see it being fun for like two or three plays. And then I can see it never being picked up again. Unless it's co-opted into a drunken drinking game. What makes you think it wouldn't be? (laughs) Come on. Uh, I'm thinking like you think. (laughs) Uh, Sean, uh, verdict? For me, it's a trap. eh? It's just something... It would be fun for one or two plays, but then I just forget about it and not particularly want to play it again. It's very nice looking. It's inoffensive. Happy to play it if you buy it, Ronan, but that's about it for me. So for me, it's a trap. Don't give me none of that if you buy it rubbish. I'm not listening. (laughs) This is top of my Essen list. This looks fantastic. I am going to have the best time with that with my girls, with people who come round, when we've had a few drinks. You are going to be seeing hop everywhere. I love it. It looks so funny. I'm in. Treasure all the way. Uh, Okay, we're going to move on to 
another expansion, Mona. Mm. It's an expansion to one of our favourite games, I would say, over the last sort of ten years. I would say so. I would say so. It's Small World River World, coming from a Days of Wonder, of course, designed again by Philip Kearts. It's a two to five player game. What is it? What does it do to Small World? Well, it brings in rivers. Now, rivers can be conquered for one token normally, but troops must be removed during the redeploy. So you can't stay there. So it's only used for passage. You have harbours, which are going to give you one extra coin if you build near a harbour. You have shipyards. You can place a ship or a caravel in any river space. And this is now a base and troops can be placed adjacent. So it's another way of deploying your troops. You have the Temple of the Seer Ronan. This is, you get to look at the next event. And why am I talking about events? Because you have events. And these happen each turn and change up the river area rules. There are storms that cost three tokens to buy river areas then you have quiet waters that make no change harsh winters rivers become land areas and now you can keep the troops in them and the pirates a pirate ship is placed in the river area and each adjacent area is now worth minus one point to be conquered that's it and it comes with a new board ronan yeah, a set of new boards for, for player numbers. Cool. Uh, what they've done is they've combined a load of other features from various expansions for Small World into one package here and thrown it together. It's got tastes of Necromancer with the pirates as the common enemy. It's got the events as Tales and Legends had. It's got the sort of special areas you can conquer as in Small World Underworld. So they've brought them together and said, here you go. Here's a groovy, funky mix-up, remix of Small World load of small extra little bits going on which is fine and sean it does look fun it does it seems underwhelming i would say at first you think eh, what's it really gonna do okay you got the rivers and okay make the rivers make a, a slight change but when you start reading all the little tweaks that it's got it actually becomes a bit more interesting and by the end you kind of think yeah that's actually fun so everything in it works as far as i can see yeah the concern for me is that small world works because of simplicity and you've got a clear strategy and you know what you're trying to do mostly for tales and legends i don't like the events very much because it just randomly gives an advantage to someone or it randomly screws you up or if you've happened to go and decline on a turn it works out way better for you than people who hadn't and it adds random to a game in which there's the possibility of people getting butt hurt by what goes on in the game. Now, if everyone's attacking each other, it's not so bad. But when the game then starts kicking you as well, or giving someone else what you see as an unfair advantage, then it can get a little bit out of hand. Yeah, I suppose with this, they're all sort of centred around those river spaces, and river spaces can either hurt or hinder you, so I suppose it kind of balances up in the end. If you tend to be not hanging around the river spaces, at times it's going to hurt you, at times it's going to help you. But I think it seems like it all balances up. And yeah, but there's an ebb and flow to small world, but sometimes you're expanding and sometimes you're not. Yeah, so if yeah. during your expanding, if you get a winter season, oh, now everything's much more difficult to get across. Or the pirates suddenly regrowing, oh, now everything's much more difficult. If you're not expanding, then that doesn't really matter so much to you. And it's that sort of a thing to me that I go, oh, I don't know. Tales of Legends is not something I needed to see come back. Put it that way. <laughs> okay, Roland, how are you falling on this one? I think if I had Small World and I hadn't played maybe 
loads of other bits that have been around expansions for it this would look really cool and really interesting oh wow that makes it up i'd love to explore it i feel like i've explored it already and i've made decisions on what bits of it i like and i own so much of small world that it's a pass for me because i don't see anything very innovative and actually to be honest with you i quite like streamlined small world better than faffy small world so it looks like a solid product it's not overpriced by any means value for money by all means go and grab it i'm not going to grab it so that's why i'm going to go trap i'm going to just drop on the other side Ron, and i haven't played as many of the expansions as you have so all of this is kind of it's fresh to me it's not a definite buy by any stretch of the imagination if i can fit in the bag at the end of the show then i might just sneak it in there but it's a treasure but not an insta-buy. That's Small World River World. Do you know what Small World River World is not, Sean? What is it, it Ronan? It's not junk. It is you know, junk. Do you know the but artwork? But is it art? <laughs> the artwork <laughs> is not junk art. Come on, let me do my segue for the love of... From Pretzel Games, two to six players, 30 minutes. This is junk art. Designed by the design team of Jay Cormier and Seng Foon Lim, who designed between them Belfort. Akrotiri, Tortuga, but wait, there's more. Godfather New Dawn, which has just come out. This is a stacking game with various plastic pieces of all shapes and sizes. There's 15 different types of plastic pieces in there. Thematically, you are a set of competing junk artists and you'll be going to be touring cities of the world trying to gain the most fans and basically fans equals points. In order to do this, you're going to deal three of 12 city cards out as long as they're eligible for player counts, because some city work for certain player counts and some don't. And you're going to play each of the cities, one in turn, and they're going to set the rules for how you're going to try and stack these pieces this time round, and how you're going to score points, and even how that game will end and you move on to the next round, trying to gather the most fans possible. I'll give you a couple of examples. In the hometown town, it's a card drafting. So you get a bunch of cards, and you take two You offer two to a person next to you. They keep one and give the other one back to you. So you're drafting out of your hand and then doing a nice split you choose sort of a thing. And then you have to add the piece on the card to your base. I should say that the cards correspond to all the pieces, by the way. That'll make a lot more sense now when I move on. If you go to Amsterdam, you get dealt a hand of cards and then you all simultaneously play a card and it's a trick-taking game and the number on the card and then the suit of the card have got corresponding strengths and whoever wins the trick picks all the cards up and deals one out to each player and that's the piece they have to add to their stack. When you move on to Gujarat, then everyone has to stack all the same at the same time. In Indianapolis, there's a race to add your pieces, but whoever does it last doesn't get to add a piece and whoever has the most pieces at the end is going to score most points. There's different ways of these finishing. It could be five pieces falling off and they all cost you a point. It could be two pieces falling off and they cost you nothing. You get an idea here. Each of the cities plays slightly differently. That's junk art. It is a bunch of different ways of playing with these pieces and stacking them up and scoring points in a box. Sean. Right. Yeah. Junk art. I wouldn't have picked this one out of the crowd. It had good jink on heat. And Sing Foon Lim was on... I think it was D6 Generation, and he was really funny and really cool, very engaging, and that kind of made me open my eyes. Hmm. Now, so there are as you said, lots of variants in the box, but are they really that different, or do they all sort of amount to the same thing? Are you getting one game with pretendy variants, or do you actually get a lot of different ways to play the game, Ronan? In the end, you're stacking. But yeah. what I like was that the variants are not, 
you're closing one eye, you're using your left hand, you're balancing one leg. They're actually quite gamely variants, as in you're playing a trick-taking game or you're in a race, but with a little twist to it. I actually really like the variants, Sean. I think they're clever ways of mixing up what could be a base game. I think if they put out that box of stuff and went, here's one way of playing it, that would have worked. you got something similar with Balzac where they put out a bunch of wooden pieces and they didn't really tie down how to play the game. And people had to kind of make up their own ways of doing it. And I feel like here, they've given you this fun box of stuff. They've got blank cards you can make your own rules up on. But they've given you real ways to play as well. Yeah, I think there is definitely a gamely side to this. It's not just about the stacking of the wooden pieces. There is that something else to think about. But when it does come down to, as you said, it's about stacking pieces then I think I'm just going to cut to the quick run and like how interesting is stacking pieces together going to be? Now, people Very. talk about the... Okay. Uh, <laughs> the people talk about, like, oh, yeah, but you end up with a lovely piece of art. No, you don't. You end up with some pieces stacked together. You can say that about animal upon animal. Yeah, you go, I've stacked some animals. I've got a lovely piece of artwork there. Well, there hold go. on. A fantastic game. Animal Animal is a decent game for a younger audience... That isn't horrible to play for adults. You're sick. This is just meh to me. All the way through, meh. I just don't see the appeal in it at all. At all. I'm going to guess it's a trap then, is it? Oh, well, we've let that cat out of the bag a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 100% trap. My biggest trap of the 12 so nutcase. far. Nutcase. Genuine nutcase. Clever, creative, fun, funny, variable. You can choose whatever rules suit your group. This is a huge treasure. Junk art looks fantastic. You're wrong. I've never been more disappointed in you. Oh, yes, you have. I have. All right, you're right. You're right. But only (laughs) quite frequently. Very disappointed in you. Um, Our last game of the episode is one of those little randoms I like to pluck from the ether every now and again. It's from Desai's Games, designed by Otis Salinskas, 2 to 14 players, and its name is Emojito. As I originally thought, Emojito. (laughs) Players will take turns in essentially drawing a card, and this card will have an emotion depicted on it. Then they will then try to act out or perform that emotion. Others are going to try and guess what it is from a lineup of seven cards. You can play this cooperatively against each other individually or in teams. That's it. I love, I love an example they've got in the rule book to clarify exactly how you can play. So there's different ways of doing this. You can just do facial expressions. You can use only sounds, but not words, but sounds. Or you can do both, depending upon kind of where you are on a board. It wasn't quite clear how that worked, but something like that. So, Sean, a clarification for you on what noises are allowed. You ready? I'm ready. An angry roar, yes. A lion snarl, no. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to have to get a philinologist in on this one, mate. Can you give me an angry roar and then a lion snarl so I can start working out what's what? It's obvious. <laughs> Was it a snarly roar? A roary snarl? They're in the same sentence as each other. I have looked at the card art. Yes. I can't see how this game could possibly work. Why not? If you've got seven cards out there. Now, yeah. let's just say that four of them are unhappy or frowny to a degree faces. Two of them are angry faces or maybe 
Maybe there's a lion snarl involved somewhere. I don't know. But not a roar. But not a roar. And one of them's a happy face. You're going to pull a happy face and everyone's going to guess it. Or with the others, nobody's going to guess because they're all really similar. Are you saying you can't do disappointed but slightly hopeful? (laughs) (laughs) Of seven emotions, there's not a lot of options there, is there? I'm pretty sure even I can pull seven emotions. This is a funny, funny one. Also, the fact that there's co-op team play and individual play in there. Did they really work out the best way to play this game? The cards are very sort of definitive. I think we talked about When I Dream in the last of our preview episodes. Oh, good, good one, Sean. There's been some clarification, isn't there? Oh, so we said there's, word, there's words on the card. So think back to when I dreamed from episode 70. There's, we were talking about the card artwork would be too complicated. There's two words on the cards. There's an easy option on top, which they say to start with, and then a harder option on the bottom. And that's what you're trying to get. So the artwork is all kind of thematic and looks lovely, but it's the word that's what's important. So the designer emailed us and told us. There you go. He did. He, he did. I still don't see the point in the, in the lovely artwork. Well, fair enough. Lovely artwork. Lovely artwork is lovely artwork. It's fun. Lovely artwork is lovely artwork. I wish this one had slightly more busy artwork because it's very definitive. It's like a face pulling a certain... The emotion. sad cherry is definitely <laughs> sad. A sad cherry is sad. Hmm. Now, if there was a bit more going on and things that you could interact with in the card itself then it would make it a little bit easier to determine between a sad cherry and a slightly mournful cherry a desolate cherry <laughs> a desolate cherry a grieving cherry <laughs> <laughs> why are we spending so long doing about this game i thought you uh, found something in it i thought that's why you put it on the list because there was some no no you know why like i the thought wondrous hop or the magical junk art yeah, if you say so. I thought that I had a glimmer here. I thought there was something to work with, but what they've produced, it just isn't creative enough. If you had so a little bit more creation and creativity behind this game, I think there might be something there. Now, I couldn't tell you what it is because I'm not that person, but I think maybe the secret message variant that might work on some level, but I think in general... I think we're both going down the same path of this, Ronan. I'm, I'm guessing you're thinking it's a trap. I think it could be funny for a play or two, but more in the laughing more at it than with it, I'm afraid. And mojito, it's a trap for me, brother. Yeah, I'm going to go exactly the same way. Yeah, it just doesn't really do anything that it sets out to do for me. And yeah, mojito is a trap for me. And that's us finished, Ronan. And there we have it, Roland. Another 12 games dissected. Hope we haven't upset too many publishers there. That was an eclectic mix. It was like heavy, heavy Euro or ridiculous dexterity party game. We didn't get too much middle of the road there, did we? Not particularly, not particularly. A funny, a funny choice. I don't know why we didn't notice that before. Well, we hope we've whet your appetite. I'm sure people don't agree with everything we said, and nor would we want you to. But it's building the excitement. About a week to go, Sean. How excited are you? So oh, it's one of those ones that I'm just trying not to think about it because I will probably combust. <laughs> Good God. 
Nobody wants that. <laughs> truly, truly not. It'd be bun spelled all over again. <laughs> Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Ronan. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. I hope you've enjoyed this. We have got more previews coming out in the week to come to Essen. I hope you are enjoying those and it's helping you somewhat hone your shopping list. Sean, would you like to see us out? I would indeed, Ronan. We are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Please go there for fabulous gaming content from a whole host of other podcasters and the Dice Tower themselves. If you wish to download our episodes, we are on Podbean. We are on iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to interact with us, you can email us on thegamepitpodcast at gmail.com or we have a Facebook page, we have a Instagram page, and we have a Twitter page. Uh, on Twitter, we are at GamePitPodcast. We also have our Board Game Geek Guild, where people like to come in and berate us from time to time, as, as is happening at the moment. And we are more than happy to chew the card with anybody who wishes to talk to us on our Geek page. Thank you very much for listening and we'll catch you on our next SM preview. Music by E. Arrow.